We've been working through the Bible, as, um, as you'll know, um, many of you will know anyway, and um, we've come to Acts, um, a section in Acts, um, we're going to look at Acts 6 to 12, Think Bigger, Much Bigger is the title I was given actually on this, and it's very appropriate, and the obvious place to start uh, when we're dealing with this subject is Exodus 34.20. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. It's a very important verse. That's actually the second time it appears in the Bible. It's also Exodus 13.13. I'll come back to that later. The story so far, as we're starting in Acts, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And it was good. After that, things went downhill rapidly. Man sinned. He rebelled against God. This caused a fatal separation, spiritually fatal and eventually physically fatal separation um, from God people became so bad, God decided to destroy all of them. All but one family who listened to him, and from that, he rebuilt the human race from that family. Didn't last too long. Things went downhill again pretty rapidly from that. God chooses one man, Abraham, or Abraham as he was at the time, and he says he's going to raise up a people from this one man, a people, his own chosen special people, and he will use them to bless the world. And as the nation grows, he rescues them from captivity. He teaches them about himself. He teaches them about holiness, the otherness of God, of being right with God. All the time, God's preparing the ground for the time he'll really redeem them properly. They went wrong several times, and God had to call them back in different ways, punish them at times, and draw them back to him. Then finally, as over the last few weeks we've been looking, we've reached the New Testament, Jesus came. God came in Jesus. He died as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. He was raised to life, bringing forgiveness to all who'd accept him. He returned to heaven and sent at Pentecost his Holy Spirit to live not just among people, as Jesus had done, but a second incarnation to live in people. All who would follow him. The disciples started to preach about this good news. First time they did it, 3,000 people came to believe. 3,000 people. Can you imagine if that happened this morning? How hard you'd have to move up in the seats to get them in. It'd be incredible. And more and more were added daily, it says in the Bible. So we're there. A happy ever after. We've arrived. People are saved. 
church is growing. God's plan of salvation has been accomplished. What more is there to do? They do need to think bigger. They need to think much bigger. Remember what God said to Abraham. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. All nations. It's been said that Pentecost, at Pentecost, the worldwide church was born. The Spirit enabled the disciples to speak in the languages, different languages of all those around, from all over the place, so that they could understand God's word. Well, that's half true. It misses one major point. Why were all those people in Jerusalem from all over the place? They were there to celebrate Pentecost, the Jewish Harvest Festival. They were Jews. Every single one of them were Jewish. They might have been from all over the place, but they certainly weren't different races. They weren't different from different nations. We're going to start with Acts um, 6. If you, you might want to look at this. It starts with internal trouble in the church. Greeks and Hebrews, all arguing about division of food and widows. And so I'll get to that in a second. I did a little early. Um, but again, they're Greeks and Hebrews, but they're all Jewish, if you look at the beginning of Acts um, 6. And persecution starts in earnest with Stephen's martyrdom the first martyr who dies for his faith. Again in Acts 6. And uh, that that whole thing starts in Acts 6 and goes through to the end of chapter 7. And when he was killed, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judah and Samaria. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. Well, that's great. We've moved out from Jerusalem. We've moved out from the Jews. We're preaching to the Samaria, um, not Samarians, Samaritans. Thank you. Um, well, again, this is a sort of... You see, the Samaritans were largely, or partly anyway, formed from the northern kingdoms of Israel that were sent into exile and other people who came into the northern part of the land and adopted pretty much the Jewish religion. And they believed the first five books of the Bible, that the Pentateuch, as it's called, Moses' writing. They believed those to be scripture. They believed in God. They were an offshoot, if you like, of the Jews. They, they were pretty much Jewish All the animosity we hear about Samaritans and Jews hating each other were based mainly on the fact that the rest of the Jews really didn't consider them to be proper Jews, uh, have a proper religion. It's one of these things where the the closer people are with a little disagreement, sometimes this seems far worse than people who are totally different. What about as we move on in Acts What about when we reach um, chapter 9? 
and the Ethiopian eunuch. An angel of the Lord, we're in chapter 8, verse 26. I'm moving really fast through this section, as you can tell. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch. Nigel, how foreign do you want from the Jews? This is an Ethiopian Well, again, yes, but what was he doing? He was reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Why would he be doing that? He was probably a descendant of the Jews that had got moved to Ethiopia, or possibly a convert to Judaism. He was Jewish, there's no other reason he would have been reading from Isaiah. It wasn't a big book outside Judaism at that time. Okay, we're going to move on. If you look at um, chapter 9, it's the conversion of Saul, or Paul as as we know him uh, later. And we'll return to him later. Um, I'm just going to skip over that for now. It's huge, it's momentous, but right now... We're going to skip on because I still want to deal with this um, Jewishness of the church, of the gospel at the moment. You see, there's a huge problem that they face. You remember the donkey that I started with? Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. You see, every firstborn animal had to be dedicated to the Lord. It was part of their tithing. It was part of their giving. It was part of reminding them that everything they had came from God in the Old Testament. And what you could do with the animals you kept, you could either sacrifice them as a sacrifice to God, the firstborn, as an offering to God, or you could redeem it with the sacrifice of another animal in its its place. The problem with the donkey was that it was an unclean animal. Now, unlike pigs, which were also unclean animals, the Jews wouldn't have kept pigs. But they would have kept donkeys. They were extremely useful animals uh, for carting things around, um, taking people for rides at the seaside. All that, well, no, maybe not then. But uh, you get the idea. They were useful animals. But they were unclean. You could not offer a donkey as a sacrifice to God. It would be insulting to him. It would be unholy. So there was only one choice. You just killed it. You broke its neck. Its life was forfeit and wasted. Or you sacrificed a lamb in its place. And after all the Jewish training in holiness, what was holy, what mattered, uh, what was important, what was acceptable to God, these things, which might seem weird to us, were extremely important to the Jews. And the Gentiles, well, they were unclean. 
They weren't holy. They were not acceptable to God. A Jew wasn't even allowed to go into a Gentile house without becoming unclean, or have a Gentile come into his home without becoming unclean. Unless, of course, a lamb had been sacrificed on their behalf to save their lives. The Lamb of God in Jesus was sacrificed for the sinner to save their lives from a lost eternity, to make them holy and acceptable to God. But the mental jump that this involved for the Jews, remember the entire church, all the people who were in the church at the time were Jewish. The leap, mental leap that that was, was enormous. It was huge. We're going to look mainly now at chapter 10 of Exodus. And this is the story which uh, Peter summarised in chapter 11, which Jonathan read to us. Um, We're going to go through it and look at what happened. But before we go through it, I want you to, to really concentrate on two things. Well, one thing in particular. I want you to see how that at every step, everything that happens in this chapter is completely and utterly directed very deliberately and very clearly by God. He's doing it. There's no, I felt prompted by circumstance. There's no evidence that it must have been God in it which we sometimes hear about events. It's, it's God. He's doing it. It's completely open and it's completely deliberate. It's possibly the most obvious case of God directing um, events in the entire Bible since the creation, uh, when God spoke everything into being. The other thing I want you to remember as we look at this is what the word Gentile means to the Jews. Um, Andrew's already mentioned it this morning. It meant everyone. Gentile means everyone in the entire world who isn't one of them. It meant foreigner. Okay. Um, If you've got your Bibles open, we need chapter 10. And we're going to start... Verse 1, and we meet uh, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. We've got a Roman centurion here. This is definitely a Gentile. He's not Jewish. He fears God, and he prays, and he does good work, but he's not, he's clearly not Jewish. Verse 3, he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, God is calling him by name, very clearly, very, very deliberately. 
And he tells him to send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. The angel has sent, has told Cornelius, a Gentile, to go and fetch the leader of the church to come to him. Notice, the angel doesn't appear to Peter. I mean, it it's first talks about Peter in the, the reading that we had from chapter 11, because that was from Peter's point of view. But the angel first comes to Cornelius, to the Gentile. He even gives him Peter's address, very literally, where he's staying. No vague sense of calling, or I feel God might be saying here. It's clear, a very direct thing. God has stepped in and said, Cornelius, this is the address I want you to send these men to, to fetch this man. And now we turn to Peter. Verse 9. This is the next day. It obviously takes a while to, to travel down to, um, to where Peter's staying. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey, these men approaching the city, who Cornelius had sent, Peter, completely oblivious to what's happening, he went up to the roof to pray. They were flat roofs, just in case you're wondering. It's not as bizarre as it sounds. He went up to the roof to pray. He's gone for his prayer time. You see, there's a problem with these men approaching the house. Peter's not going to go with them. They are unclean Gentiles. They're unacceptable. He can't... He might talk to them, but he's not going to do any more. He's not going to go with them. But God prepares him for this event while he's praying. It's an older woodcut. Probably not very literal. You have to wonder why the cherubs are playing hoopla with his head. But... uh, The Holy Spirit gives Peter a supernatural hunger. He makes him starving. He's really, really hungry while he's praying. Would it occur to you if that happened while you were praying, that actually God was doing it? It's very strange. Then, he offers something to eat. In a vision, this cloth full of food, comes down before Peter. And God says, go on, have something to eat, you're hungry. And it's all things that are forbidden by the Jewish law. They're unclean, they're not kosher. I can't have those. No, Lord, I'm a good God-fearing Jew. I'm not going to defile myself. I've got to remain holier. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not going to do that. It must be some form of temptation that's being put before him. It happens three times. God is messing with Peter's understanding of holiness here. He's seriously messing with his mind and what he understands holiness to mean. And then the Spirit clearly says to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Very, very deliberate, very direct. God is Step by step, everything he's directing. 
And Peter invites them in. That's a biggie. It's a little phrase, but that's a biggie. Peter invites the men in to the house to stay. That's huge. He couldn't just get up and go back. Presumably it was reaching the end of the day. They'd travel the next day. That's a huge thing. Unclean Gentiles invited into a Jewish home. That really is massive. Peter's come a long way with that prayer time. After swapping, so Peter, the next day, he travels to Cornelius' home and discovers that Cornelius has gathered all his friends and relatives into the house to listen to this great man that the Holy Spirit has sent him to, to call. And as he comes, um, Peter says, you're well aware, this is verse 28, you're well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, you, sent for I came without raising any objection. Peter's understood the vision that confused him so much, the time God spent messing with his mind. They swap stories. They discover that God's been working on both sides. And Peter, right, I can preach the good news. God's obviously prepared me for this. This is why he sent me. He starts to tell him the good news about Jesus. But God's still in control. Peter doesn't even finish. It says, while he was still talking, the Holy Spirit falls upon these men, these Gentiles. The circumcised believers, the Jews, who had come with Peter, were astonished. They were astonished. They were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, the living God, had been poured out even on the Gentiles. God chose to dwell inside these unclean foreigners. It completely blew their mind. If you look at the beginning of chapter 11 that, um, that uh, Jonathan read to us, you see again when Peter comes back, the other Jewish believers in the church, they're shocked at what he's done. He's gone and spent time with Christians. This is amazing. We don't realise today how huge all of this is. The step from the gospel being the church being Jewish to reaching out a step further. And he goes one more step while he's there, Peter. He says, come on, we've got to baptise these guys. Why can't we baptise them? Again, we often don't realise baptism is based or as a lot of it comes from the, the Jewish ceremonial washing, the cleansing idea. You can see that if you look in John um, chapter 3, 23 to, to 26. They're, they're, they're all muddled up, the Jewish ceremonial wash, washing and baptism, the talk about them. Um, there's a clear link in the Jewish mind, at least. Baptism was a Jewish rite. It had never been done on a Christian before, on a, a Gentile before. 
Peter says, let's perform this Jewish rite on a Gentile. Again, a huge biggie, a massive step. So I'm going to ask you a question. Seeing all of this, how clearly God took this whole process step by step, how much he was in control, how much he directed it, how clear it was it would never have happened if he didn't do that. Just how important is it to God to share the love, his love, and the gospel of Jesus, his eternal salvation, cross-culturally, with the foreigner, with the stranger, with those who are not like us. It's a biggie, isn't it? It's a huge question. The unsettling thing is, the answer's so clear. Let's leap back to Paul, Saul, as he, he was at the time. We see that through a direct intervention of Jesus and the Holy Spirit on the road to Damascus, and quite probably through the testimony of Stephen, who was martyred. He gave a a huge testimony about Jesus before they killed him. And Paul was there. Paul becomes a Christian. He gives his life to Christ. And eventually, he becomes known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. Just beyond um, the, the... remit I've been given, if you like, of chapters 6 to 12, just in the beginning of chapter 13, Paul is dedicated by his church, by the leadership of his church, with, um, it's Barnabas, isn't it? I haven't opened it before me. Um, Thank you, Andrew, he's nodding, he went out of my mind with Barnabas, to go out as missionaries, almost the first missionaries, if you like, um, to go out and um, preach the gospel to the Gentiles. All around the world, well, a large portion of the world that was known then anyway, to spread the gospel. It's a pattern that's still followed today, actually. Loads of churches, um, people are called to serve God in different places, among different communities. And churches gather and they support and they pray for and they help equip them. That's, I said I work for SIM, uh, which stands for Serving in Mission, the Missionary Society. And I see all sorts of people come through who, that's what they felt, and their churches are supporting them, and their friends are helping them financially and in prayer, and um, encouraging them as well, um, in all sorts of ways, just to, to go and, and do what God has called them to do overseas. Calling individuals to mission, like Paul, World mission has really started um, with this. And we also see that Paul was responsible, partly responsible, early on, before his conversion, for the persecution 
uh, that reaches actually new heights in chapter 12, uh, where the disciple James, John's brother, James and John, sons of thunder in the gospel, James is killed. But that has another effect, that persecution. The Christians spread out. They leave because of the persecution. They move out to safer places. And as they go, they too take the gospel with them. Ordinary people, just talking to people that they meet, they work with in these new places, telling them about Jesus. So there are three different ways we see the gospel being spread in these chapters. Very deliberate, divine intervention, Peter and Cornelius. And believe it or not, that still happens today. Uh, Not Peter and Cornelius, obviously, but, for instance, during Ramadan, when uh, Muslims fast, religious Muslims fast during the day, some of them, many of them, pray for God to reveal himself to them. And it's certainly not uncommon for them to have dreams and visions in which they meet Jesus and discover him. People are nodding. They've obviously heard that before. It's true. It happens. Uh, God reveals himself uh, through divine intervention to people. Missionary work. Paul, sent out by his church. Again, something that still happens today. Churches involved in mission. Either people going, or supporting, or praying for, or All sorts of of different ways people get involved in that. Not everyone is called to go. But I think we're all called to be involved in some way. And just daily life. Every Christian, day by day, wherever they find themselves, with whoever they're with, on the right occasion, at the right times, just through who they are, sharing the gospel, bringing people to God. All quite challenging things, maybe. But God has such a heart for people to know him who don't. And one final thing I want to say, it's a little bit of a bugbear of mine, I I must admit, but it's so easy to get sidetracked from this. Today it's very acceptable, it's very politically correct to be involved in aid work. Food aid, Medical work, education, loads of other things. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, In fact, wherever you take the gospel to people, you soon discover that it becomes a necessary part of doing that. Jesus did it. He healed people. He fed people. But that's not why he came. That's a side effect of who he was. But that's not why he came. He came to die for the sinner, that they might have eternal life, to save them from a lost eternity in hell. That's why he came. And that's what mission is too. It's so easy because it's politically incorrect to share the gospel, to suggest that people's beliefs or religions or sometimes customs, aren't actually acceptable to God, won't save them, and will lead them to hell. 
that's very politically incorrect and frowned upon. And it is so easy for us just to move, to concentrate on just the aid. Just the aid work, which everyone outside the church will approve of. It's part of mission. It's an essential part of world mission. But it isn't it on its own. It has to involve the gospel. Jesus said, what benefit is it for a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 